until right now, it will tie in. <laughs> Telling you in advance, when I was in middle school, middle school is a super awkward time. And I obviously didn't grow out of that. I'm still there. But <clears throat> I remember I was actually at church and we went to this uh, fairly large church. And um, for some reason, I was out of the service or something between, you know, things were going on. Um, and there was this long, wide, big hall. And of course, I was junior high, so I was much smaller. And it seemed probably bigger than it was, but it went, you know, from one end of the building, of the whole campus kind of to the other end. And there were bathrooms right in the middle. And so for some reason, I was standing, must have been waiting for somebody. I just, this is burned into my memory. I was in the, leaning against the, the wall, and I saw this woman, and she was probably in her 20s or something, 30s, and uh, she, she, uh, she was a rather heavyset lady, and she went into the, to the bathroom. And I, I don't know why, I guess I was waiting, I don't know what exactly my story was, but after a little while, she came out of the bathroom, and she turned and she started to come towards me, like from Doug over there across this way, and... So I see her, I'm I, like, I don't know if I made eye contact, but I see her coming across and she's on the other side of the hall. And y'all, she had stuck the toilet paper in the back of her skirt or whatever, okay? I still, I mean, it was a skirt, I still remember. And she's walking along and she's dragging this train of toilet paper from I'm literally this far. Like she like, it must have been a perfect spooling situation. <laughs> She just didn't know. I mean, I don't know how she got it wedged in there so tight. And I still remember feeling all these thoughts. i like, what should I do? I could, you know, I couldn't say anything, obviously. So I had to let it happen. I had to let it un- unroll before me. <laughs> and I, I just watched this horrible nightmare go by, thing for this girl go by. And I just, I couldn't say anything. Um, I was just in this frozen moment of, uh, of awkward middle school fear. And uh, anyway, she walked on down the hall, it came loose, and she just kept going. And um, I still feel for her, even today. It's been like 40 years. I still feel it. David was in a similar situation. <laughs> uh, because... You know, he, it was a little more tense for him. He had been uh, running from King Saul. He's in a uh, situation where he has about uh, one in ten to Saul's guys. Saul has tons of men uh, chasing him all over this, this desolate wilderness. And at one point, David is in a cave. They're hiding because Saul has gotten so close. And so David and some of his men are in this cave. And uh, Saul and his group come by. And at that moment, actually... Uh, Saul himself comes into the cave. Now, you know, that, that must have been pretty intense. You, you know, it, 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 when I read it, it made me think about, you remember in Lord of the Rings when uh, Frodo and Pippin and Merry and, and Sam are being chased? They're just coming out of the Shire and they come in contact with the first Nazgul. Those of you who are with me are with me. And the Nazgul comes, and uh, Frodo recognizes something bad's coming, and they hide underneath this outcropping, and they're up underneath it, and the, the tree roots and stuff are above them, and they're hiding, and they show that, that uh, creepy, you know, uh, living dead uh, king, you know, leaning out, sniffing for them, you know. 
And it's just a super intense moment. And that's what's happening when, when uh, the army is right outside and they're back in the back of the cave and they're trying to be quiet. Obviously, they're in the darkest part of it. And in comes Saul himself, right? So it must have been a very intense moment. The guy who has the power to kill David and is chasing him for that very purpose is inside the cave with them. But the funny part of it is that Saul isn't coming to find David. He's coming in there to use that place as an outhouse. That's how the tie-in works. Okay. Um, David sees Saul come in. And... uh, (laughs) In this extremely uh, tense situation, David's friends around him say, you can kill him now. You can take him. You have the power over him now. He's alone. He's isolated. You can take him. And instead of being frozen and not knowing what to do and how to move forward, like I was when this this sort of thing happened, um, David immediately responds to his little community of, of warriors, and he says, guys, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take Saul's, Saul's life. And here's the main point. David trusted in the goodness of God in that extremely stressful situation. God had established Saul as the king. The troubles that Saul brought David were a part of God's plan. And David trusted God's goodness in the worst, most tempting possible moment. And so what David actually did was he went, and you may, some of you may know this story, he went, he snuck up, and apparently Saul had taken off his, like, outer garment and thrown it over here and was taking care of business over here, and he snuck over and cut off a piece of that garment and took it with him to use for later as a, um, a warning to Saul. How did David do that? How did he trust God in a situation where he could have taken matters into his own hands? and fixed it right there, been done. And that army probably would have turned and followed David. Those are so good. I'm going to save that one for a second. So what I want to do with you guys today is I want to look at how it is that David did that. How was it possible for him to trust God's goodness so much? And that's the reason that we read the psalm. Thank you, Rosie, for reading that. The psalm, at the beginning of it, it says that it's written by David in it, from a cave. And he, there are several of those in the psalms. If you look, it'll have a little heading. It says this is a, a psalm that David wrote when he was hiding in the wilderness in a cave. And so we're going to learn from that. This, some of the things that David did to prepare himself to deal with these situations. So what I think you're going to see are these three practices, and I want to point them out to you. Hopefully they make sense. Hopefully you can uh, think of how to incorporate some of these personally. It was, this was really helpful to me to see how David processed this situation. One, acknowledge. Two, accumulate. And three, assert. So one is to acknowledge the fact that you have some trouble. Some things are hard. You've got to acknowledge that. Two, 
accumulate the goodness of God in your soul. Accumulate the goodness of God in your soul. And then assert, verbally assert who God is and what he has done. These are the three things we'll see. And there's much more in this psalm. But I just want to bring you to those three points and show them to you. Yeah, five-second rule. (laughs) So first, acknowledge your troubles. We're actually going to start out of order in the passage and scoot down to verses 9 and 10. I think you probably noticed Rosie is reading that in her beautiful voice, and it's such lovely uh, pro, uh, uh, poetry. And then she gets to this point and she reads, and may my enemies go to hell. <laughs> may they die by the sword and be eaten by jackals or foxes or the animals. That's rough. And we're looking at David. It, we're kind of, you know, the Bible's upholding David. So how are we supposed to reconcile that? I wanted to go straight to this with you guys. Because when you read the Psalms and you look at David's life, there is stuff in there you're like, I don't get this. And we, we have to address this stuff head on. I think, let me just read it to you, uh, 9 and 10. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. That was a nice way of saying what I said earlier. 10, they shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. The whole point, let me remind you, of the series that we're in is this. Grace changes everything. God paints the story of his grace on the canvas of broken people. So when I look at David and I say, man, that guy's jacked up. Well, we are all messed up. David is a premier part of the lineage of Jesus Christ. Without David, we don't have the story of Jesus. We can't understand the story of Jesus the same way without David. But David is utterly broken in so many ways. Even in the midst of the beautiful things he writes, the good things he does, there are very broken things about David. But God uses broken things to do good. He brings, he resurrects out of evil and death and rottenness, grace and good stuff. See, while David was different than us, he was about to be the king, he was appointed and anointed by God, he and us both were, are called to mercy, to have mercy on others. And so we have to somehow reconcile what David is saying. And part of that is to recognize that everything David says, we don't need to hold up. We need to weigh it against all of Scripture, not just that one moment, those, things that, those places, David. We have to realize David was not perfect. So when he says those things, uh, while they, some of those things did happen, that does not mean that those are the best things. And we need to recognize that. But what I see in this is a principle for us that we can take away is this. David just writes down, you know what, God, in the midst of all this great stuff and how good you are, and even though I'm in a cave and I'm being chased by somebody, that's why I'm in a cave. You, you, God, are worthy. And I'm going to write down my troubles and put them before my face and your face. People are trying to kill me. So here's the application I have for you. It's very simple. One of the steps we can do to help us move towards trusting God is just flat out write down what our troubles are. 
Just take some time alone with God, get a piece of paper or your journal and write down what it is, however hard it is, who it is. If it's your fears, if it's how you feel about yourself, if it's what's going on in life, if it's person, if it's enemies, if it's um, your history, any number of whatever your troubles are, once you get them written down and can go back and circle and tie them together and look at what's really going on, it's so helpful. It's a life-changing thing because you'll find out you have a finite number of problems. And that's what David does. At least, even though we can't understand and relate to this terrible condemnation that he throws out, we can write down what our troubles are. So I want to encourage you. That's, I, want to think, I think, one of the first steps to trusting God is to write down what our troubles are. I have this question. It's, it may be... Uh, I don't know if it's inappropriate, but it says, this is inappropriate. Uh, this, is what, this is a question for you to help guide your, your, uh, your journaling. Who or what is using the restroom in your cave? This is not dark chocolate with cherries. Man, I'm starting to shake. I'm just going to cue that up. <laughs> this is not trick or treat, dude. These are mine. <clears throat> that's, a, that's in the fall. Okay, acknowledge your troubles. Trust God, accumulate the good things of God in your soul. Accumulate the good things of God in your soul. This is a practice. This isn't something that just happens. We practice this. If you're here a few weeks ago, Eric Eaton spoke to us, and he was uh, drawing from the, what we knew about the life of David before he faced Goliath and the, the pieces that, of his life that God had used to prepare him to be at that moment. If you remember, uh, Eric had five stones because he was really fascinated with the fact that David went and and kneels down and picks up five stones. He ends up only using one of them. But what uh, Eric was saying was that there's this history of preparation that went into this to get David to the place where he was. And a lot of that were, were looking at the story and figuring out what those things were. In this case, David actually puts them right in front of us and we can see this is what David was doing to practice to practice accumulating the good things of God in his life. So I'm just going to hit very briefly three things. One is that he seeks God. One is that he watches for God. And one is that he holds on tight to God. In verse verse 1, under the idea of seeking him, he says, Oh God, you're my God. I earnestly seek you. We're going to sing our... Our band is going to sing those words in a few moments and we have communion. You'll notice them. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As if I were in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's how I feel. I thirst for you so much. I seek for you. This is this cool thing that happens in our relationship with God. When we seek him, there is a reciprocal thing that happens where we begin to thirst him, thirst for him, 
and hunger for him. And then we seek him and we thirst and we hunger for him. And this thing, this pattern starts to happen. But it's a practice that we actually have to step into to seek him. Keller says that one of the things that helps us know that we are a believer is that there is this desire, this hunger for God that we didn't start with. That he plants this little hunger. And if you're a believer, you'll have that hunger to know more about God. That's something that comes with that. And then you begin to seek, and then you have hunger, and then you seek. But the application, how, how are we supposed to seek? What, you may be thinking, okay, what am I supposed to do? Well, I want to throw that back on you. When you're spending that time journaling, when you're thinking about, okay, what are those troubles that I'm dealing with? What's happening in my life? How do I seek God? If I answer that question for you, in my, and we don't do it personally, then it's just something that somebody told you. If you think through it and talk to God about it, how is it that I seek you, God? And just see what he brings to you. I think that's a step of application. So seeking him is part of accumulating his goodness in our hearts. Oh no, I'm gonna get this here. Watch for him. Look in verse uh, two with me. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory. I think that's a beautiful statement. But y'all, there was no sanctuary. Where David was, there's no sanctuary. Remember, he's in the wilderness. This is written from a cave. So what is it that he's actually experiencing where he's seeing the goodness of God? You know, cathedrals, the biggest, most beautiful cathedrals were built to point to God. I mean, literally they point in all of the things, the looking up, everything within them points to God. But like, we don't, we don't have a sanctuary either, by the way. This is not that in a, in a traditional sense. But y'all, like we talked about last week, when we go out these doors right here, out of this darkness, and we go into that light, th- that is a sanctuary. And it's the same one that David was experiencing. And that's pretty cool. When David says, I look at your sanctuary, and it points me to you. These are mine. Accumulate his goodness by looking at what he has built and what he has made that is pointing to him. And third, in this idea of accumulating, hold on tight. In verse 8, my soul, my soul, the deepest part of me, God, clings to you. It's a great visual, I think. It clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Again, we have that reciprocal relationship. I cling to you. And in that culture, to be held up or embraced by the right hand of the leader was the, the best thing that could happen to you in, in, the, in the culture. So I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. It brings me in. I, you know, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but couple of times I've been on a rope swing and you don't, most of the time you don't rope swing very often. It's not something we do every day. And I'm always surprised when you get on that swing and you, you're going down and you're towards the bottom of the, the apex down there and you feel this incredible pressure on you. You're trying to hold on to that rope and, it, and it's just begging you. Your hands are begging you to just let go and just fall right into the water right there instead of riding on up. 
when we're under pressure, when things are the hardest, like David, the situation David was in, y'all, I think it's, it's really cool. He says, in this situation, I cling to you. I cling to you, and you'll pull me through that low point. I'll cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. It's not, in, that, in this case, it's not all on us. We cling, and he lifts us up. So there are these ideas in accumulating the goodness of God. But I want to warn you, uh, when we're accumulating, we're feeding ourselves with those things, there is this parallel thing that we're doing in life, and that is this. We are filling ourselves with rebellion, things that we think are going to satisfy us that are outside of God's plan. And here's the principle. Sin, rebellion against God, ruins our appetite. I mean, if you don't remember almost anything else, I hope you remember this. We attempt to fill ourselves with the things that look really good at the moment. I'm not going to lie, I feel pretty gross right now. Uh, somebody just said, where are you going to go to lunch? You know what? I could have gone. Now I've ruined it. I could have gone and had a great lunch, right? And I could have had a couple of these afterwards, right? But I'm telling you, I'm not going to do that. I knew that was a cost of this, of eating these. I mean, man, even at like 8 a.m. when I got these out of the cabinet, I was like, oh, this looks so good. When we choose to fill ourselves even with good things that God has created out of the sequence that he has given them to us and explained to us in his word how they work, what we do is we're rebelling against him. We're, the word we use is using the scripture is we sin against him. We break relationship with him and we fill ourselves up. And what happens is when we do this, what I've been doing and filling ourselves up with the thing at the moment, then I lose my appetite for the good things of God. You will replace that thing. And so if you're wondering, well, I'm not hungry for the things of God. I don't even want to seek. Well, there is a reason that that happens sometimes. Maybe that we're filling ourselves with other things. Instead, it's like, it's the thing we don't, we don't trust. God says, I'm here. Trust him when he says, if you will wait on me, I will take care of it. If you will wait till marriage, if you will wait until Sorry, I provide I for you. If you will wait for in your music. the friendship I'm giving, instead of making this thing happen, I will, I will take care of you. And see, that's the same thing that's happening with David. David has a choice to fix it with a knife, but he doesn't. He trusts God. He denies himself the appetite that he had at this point in his life. And what happens is, now I'm, I've sacrificed this great meal that probably included something like this afterwards. I'm not going to have that today, right? Because I wanted something before it was time. I, I satiated my appetite. And now not only have I satiated, but I don't feel good. Honestly, I don't feel very good. 
Amen. Here's a cool thing. A friend told me this. He said, and now I've practiced this and it makes a difference. When we starve our appetites for these things, we, not candy, but when we starve our appetites for sin, it becomes less and less powerful. It has less impact on us when we put it further and further and further and further away from us. doesn't mean it's gone. But the less I look at it and depend on it and want it, the further it goes away from me, the less I want it. And that's true, y'all. You can starve your appetite for sin and begin to seek God in thirst and hunger for him as if you're in a desert. Okay, finally, David, said, David does this. He asserts truth about God verbally from his, from his actual lips. This is beautiful stuff. I wish I could read it like Rosie did in verse three through seven. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands, physical. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, when I meditate you on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. So here, I mean, this is something we tell little kids. Use your words. There is something in the practice of verbally saying who God is and what he has done that changes our hearts, helps us to starve our addictions, our affections, and begin to feed and hunger for him, feed on him and hunger for him. And and this is a little note about prayer in this. You know, we spend a lot of time personally praying for what we want. And that's good. God asks us to do that. He tells us to do it. But let me encourage you in practice, what if you were to speak with your lips who God is, what he has done, instead of asking. So if you want to practice, try that. Practice speaking who he is. So to trust in the goodness of God, we acknowledge our troubles. We just put them out there. We, we identify them. We accumulate the good things of God and then assert verbally, physically, who he is. And let me, uh, let me close with this thought. Uh, David, if you want to come on down, we're going to have communion, and David's going to lead us in a moment. And those of you who are going to help us with that, you can get prepared too as I wrap this up. There's something that David says that's just so unbelievable and so cool. And it's, it's right at the beginning of verse three. Your steadfast love is better than life. That is an unbelievably powerful statement. The question for me is, do I trust that that is true? Do I trust that the love of God is better than anything I can come up with in this life? Anything I can accomplish, do, manage, accumulate, whatever. Your love is better than life. I want to ask you to let that question resonate as, as we uh, step forward into communion and have a few moments of silence. Your love is better than life. God, we, uh, we acknowledge we're broken and we're looking at a broken guy. Uh, but Father, here we are. Um, and I, I just, I ask that I and my friends here would trust that your love is better than life. 
And God, that we would practice what it takes to um, incorporate that. And, And I pray that you draw it into our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.